Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Hello, this is Chris Whitehall. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have Roy Tuscany, who is the founder and CEO of the High Fives organization. We're gonna get into why High Fives at some point. This organization has done over 6 million in dispersed funds since its inception in 2009, 1.5 million in empowerment camps and grant funding, over 500 total athletes served. This This is absolutely amazing what you and your organization have done. Welcome, Roy. Awesome. Chris, what an honor it is to be here. And I totally didn't catch the whole name tags thing. And I like have this collection of name tags that my buddy makes for the foundation out of wood. So I was just like, as we were talking, I wasn't like distracting, but I was like grabbing all my different name tags that I, that I have um, because I just thought it was like such a great way to open this. And I was just like, oh my God, he probably thinks I'm not paying attention, but really I was sifting through all of them because also in here, I've got, you know, I've got a lane, I've got an Elena gunner, a bunch of other ones for other people, uh, in my world, but I Who just are your so wife good. and your, and your son. So, you know, or, yeah. <laughs> or soon to be wife, right. We're still not quite sure. Yeah. Maybe one day she'll, maybe one day we'll, we'll, we'll find that out. I mean, we're, one day we'll get married. That's that's the honest truth. One day we'll get married. Well, I did see a <laughs> ring back in yes. back in December, right? So yeah, <laughs> yes. There is a plan. Not to bring you through through all of that stuff so early. Not to put you on the spot. But it's interesting that you have all those name tags. Our name tags program with my foundation is about the labels that we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations. I can't do this because of this or that, which fits so perfectly with what you do, but it's interesting to see your journey. So you were a mechanical engineering major and yeah. UVM? Yeah, my my father was a civil engineer growing up uh, doing structural engineer and, and wastewater management for companies like IBM and waste um, way management up in uh, Northern Vermont. And then he also did a bunch of work engineering wise in the National Guard at one time being the commander of the 158th Airborne Division at, up at Burlington. And it just always led me to want to understand like how things worked. I didn't want to understand how wastewater worked, which was my dad's specialty, but I, I always wanted to know how things work. So yeah, I went to UVM, uh, degree in mechanical engineering. You basically get a minor in mathematics um, just from the number of math classes you take. And then, you know, how to deal with mom and dad, go coach skiing for two years. And then it's time to use that degree. And, you know, that's what got me out West. And, that's how, you know, I transcended from, you know, college of studying to, you know, heading out to California. Heading out to California as a freestyle ski coach and skiing. We'll talk about the whole skiing thing, but some of it is so as an engineer sometimes. And, and this is this is gross stereotyping on my part. But you're talking about the math. You're talking about the analytical side of it. You don't seem like that guy. Are you different now? than you were when you were in college? Is this something where your accident changed you or are you exactly the same person and you happen to be that person going through the engineering program too? No, oh gosh, no, I was, I was very, um, I was very kind of insecure with my personality, um, very ego driven. Um, 
very much like, haha, I can do this. You can't. I mean, I, I had completed calculus two by my freshman year. I'd done every, you know, math class at my high school by my sophomore year and taking college level classes. By the time of getting to college, I had already completed, you know, many of the minimal requirements for mathematics and engineering just based upon my, you know, advancements in math. So I think, you know, my injury humbled me to a degree. I mean, I still struggle with ego and insecurities in different fashions, but, you know, it's no longer in that world. I don't think you're alone in that, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Good. That is, that's huge to hear. Um, But I think, you know, yeah, I went from, you know, a very, you know, that type of person to now, you know, like even the other day we were doing some, you know, calculations on the number of units we needed for this event. And my staff members like, how are you doing that math in this, in your head while we're talking? And it's just, you know, it's just, it comes natural to me. And I think, you know, I still use it in this world of nonprofit and all the things that I do. I, I see an end result and then I deconstruct it all the way to where we are in this current time. And then I work myself forward. Yeah, it's not, you know, solving how do we get a rocket to the moon uh, or how do we design the next up and coming best air conditioning unit for a building. But it's also solving things that I'm way more passionate about now, too. And it's the language that you speak in a lot of ways, you know, the way that you see the world, the way that you communicate. Skiing also was something that you communicated. I mean, and, and it's interesting to kind of look at how you started skiing, right? So this was a, this was a school program. And then yeah. I read about this. Is this actually true that you ended up on like the steep trail at the bottom of Bolton and decided that let's get it over with quickly and just straight lined it and ran into the ran into the lodge did that actually happen yeah unfortunately you know crashing i guess was a big part of my skiing uh career that has led me in different directions one the initial crash hooked me on it i I don't know why but yeah true story uh after school program third grade mom gave me the choice um either play hockey or, or learn to ski um i at the time i think weighed 48 pounds and was like four foot nothing and i was just like seeing at the same time kids in Vermont that have been, you know, born on, you know, whole milk and like ground beef that were raised on the farm that are six foot tall at this age. I'm like, and they're going to be on skates. I'm like, oh, skiing sounds great. I can't get that hurt. You know, little did I know, uh, little did we all know how dangerous skiing can be, but you know, I um, went to Bolton, small little resort, Delorier family, Warren Miller famous, like was a transcendent of why I came to California, ended up coaching under Eric Delorier, was the head coach of the academy I went to work for, but really got attracted to skiing because of the Deloriers and the Egan's after school program, a bunch of my buddies I grew up with had been skiing their whole life. Their parents were skiers. My parents, I think went skiing once and they hated it. They were Nordic skiers, you know, they, they like to go out cross country across our property and that was skiing to them. To me, I was like, let's go fast. Like, this is so slow. This is so pointless. It takes so much effort. Like, God bless Nordic people. I, I a lot of times people say, like, who are the most like physically fit humans? Nordic skiers and boxers. Like, no one can top what those two athletes can do. It's it's unbelievable what they can do to the human body. But it got me to skiing. My buddies were like, Yeah, dude, get your equipment. Let's go. This is before helmets. This is before a lot of things that are now in place, I think, to make skiing a little more safety signage, you know, that says like dangerous stuff like that. And uh, went up the mountain. I remember I, I got on the lift the first time I got on the lift 
it hit me in the back of the knee and I had no clue. Reflux, boom, drop, chair takes me out. I get down, pick up my stuff, get on the chair. I'm like, oh God, get to the top. Had never skied, never even put skis on. I think like the heels were still up, you know, came down the thing, crash at the top. By then my buddies are just talking to me like, yeah, you'll be fine. Just pizza. I'm like, pizza. I'm like, yeah, I want pizza. They're like, yeah, let's go. You know, no clue. Um, they take off 30 seconds later. I'm like, what is to do here? And um, by the time I got myself even kind of figuring out how to go straight, I saw a sign that said practice slope. I was like, oh, practice, practice. That must mean that, you know, um, practice is the uh, practice is the easy place to go so I went there that's that's chronicle thinking that's like chronological thinking little did I know at Bolton Valley practice slope meant steepest hill it's where they ran slalom and I saw one opportunity because I'm in my mind I'm like I am not taking my skis off and walking down that is that is option no only option is get down and I just said point it nothing bad can happen and I hit that building so hard like the vision that I have in my mind but I was like smart enough I was like straight at it for the last second and took it off the side, oh, bam, took it, boom, hit the ground. And my buddy's dad, Eric Green's dad, I barely knew him, but he came up to me and he like dusted the snow off me. And he's like, come with me. And he brought me over to the lesson zone. He's like, you're going to be here for a while. And that's where I was for the next couple of weeks. And I learned what pizza, French fry, and eventually, you know, set me on a course uh, that like skiing made every decision from third grade to Stephen, where I am right now. What made you fall in love with it? I mean, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a historical sto- uh, hysterical story of your start. But what you know, what was the part of it? Was it the speed? Was it the was it? I mean, community is such a huge part of who you are too. Was it something like that starting off, or what was what connected you to connected you to the sport, even though you ran into the lodge at the bottom of the you know? Because most people, I mean, a lot of people be like. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm going home. I'm, and then you get quarantined over into like the beginner area. And you're yeah. Like, I don't want to be here. All my buddies are there. So what hooked you to keep coming back to it? You know, I didn't even think of it till right now, but it's pretty funny that my fear of why I didn't want to do hockey was like running into a legitimate, like, you know, fictional wall. And for some reason, it's what hooked me into skiing. Um, you know, later in life, a great friend of mine, Arnie Backstrom, who unfortunately passed away, uh, he said, you know, skiing is the most beautiful way to travel. And I think what that really means and has always meant to me is why I fell in love with it, is skiing really is the most beautiful way to travel. Um, like I said, all the blessings in the world to folks that have been a Nordic skier their whole life and have found the means to travel that way. But for me, it's always been, and probably for you, that like, that one turn, you know, so many people talk about it in golf. I, I continually go back to play golf because I hit one good shot. And for me, it's always been with skiing. It, you know, before my injury, it was one, it was like this transition that I would do, like natural transition. I would find going skiing that would create this air that I saw in my mind, like, oh my God, that's so cool. And, you know, now later, I'm a four tracker since my injury. Now it's really like, can I make this one? turn every time it's like okay let's let's go back I'm still I'm still interested in this sport and it's just been a transition and how I've had a transition but that's why I fell in love with it it is truly the most beautiful way to travel and when you can find that that thing that 
get you to come back for that one time every time and trying to continually perfect it. It allows you to constantly be in search of, you know, perfecting your craft. And I think that's a really cool way to look at skiing. It's a craft. It's, it's more than a sport. No, I'm in complete agreement with you. You're coming back in search of that perfect turn and you never quite get there, right? There's always something you can do better. Like every time now, and you know, as it's transitioned into adaptive, it's, it's always, oh, I could have set my outrigger a little more. Or, oh, I could have not used my outrigger as much. It's, it's like, it's fine tuning to that as, you know, that's probably the same thing that you see, you know, as you've transcended your ski career from competitive to now someone that's very, you know, much a face of the sport in the, in the pushing of it and where it's came from. Yeah. And it's, and which is great. And thank you. I think I appreciate that, but it's, but yeah, it's funny. Like skiing in a mono ski oftentimes is where I, where I forget that I'm sitting down, that it's that feeling, you know, it's the sense of making a turn, which is so different than anything else you do. And so different in that every single time I start a new year, I have this fear that I'm just not going to be able to do it going up the chairlift, it's like, I know I've done this a lot, but I don't really know if I remember because nothing else that you do is even similar to it. It's funny because we talked about the engineering part. Now, I mean, you've kind of got like a little right brain, left brain kind of thing going on too. You know, you've got like the analytical side and then you've got this sort of artistic side too. It is How does that balance work for you? You know, I think like, the beauty is, is like, I can't draw to save my life. Um, and I can't also like, uh, paint a picture to do anything that resembles what the piece of art would look like. So luckily there's that big disconnect there. Uh, but the thing that I'm always constantly trying to do is like approach it from a mechanical side of things is, Hey, if I keep my arm and I literally think about it, like a lot of times is I come up and over a roller you know, with my outriggers as a four tracker, like I want to get this certain angle with this arm. And I'm constantly thinking about that angle and how far it is away from my body. And like, when I think I've done it right, it's like, okay, remember how far that was, and what angle the elbow was. So from that point of view, it's like, yeah, there is a way to create that kind of, you know, beautiful art that I'm trying to achieve. But unfortunately for me, I'm not painting a canvas. I'm trying to solve the problem to get to the analytical answer of one, which is not always the same when you try to mix those things. I just, you might be staying in the left side. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> You're doing the calculations. And I read something at one point that they were doing, it was like British uh, secret service or something like that, that they were making them train and solve math problems while they were like riding a stationary bike. And it was actually sort of like perceived effort once they had to, once they were able to stop doing the math problems, then it seemed like they were, they were going the same speed or at the same output and everything, but it seemed a whole lot easier because their mind wasn't doing it. But maybe for you, this is more of the security part of it. Like, yeah, okay. I can do the, I can do the equation and everything's good and we're all set. With you know, real, real quick topic there, Chris, I'd cut you, but back in the day, Gmail used to have a feature where you'd have to use a math problem if you wanted to send an email late at night. And like in my early days of high fives, working multiple jobs and everything and partying, all these things, I always like, well, this doesn't work for me because like, this is too easy. Like right now, just, just side note there, but that's always been my thing, man. It's like math is like the downfall. It either can be used good or against me. <laughs> 
that is hysterical. So did you write to the people at Gmail and say, look, can, can you give me level two, level three or something like that if you really want to check me? Or you could just like put any question from the verbal part of the SATs um, and I'll get a, it wrong. Like just, just swap out. Can you give an option like SATs? Can we do a verbal or a math section here on these emails? Because if you're like, uh, the word means this, what's it compared to? I have no clue. I barely can speak the English language. <laughs> that is hysterical. So with, the, with skiing, I mean, it started at Bolton Valley. Then you went to Sugar Sugar Bush, which is which is right in the area. I mean, you're from you're from Waterbury, right? I'm mean, so Waterbury. Do I have this right? Is that is that Ben and Jerry's too? Yeah, I was there. Oh, yeah. um, I was there when they built the original plant, and until Unilever, who now owns them, the parent company Ben and Jerry's was bought by Unilever, a global brand. When you paid your property taxes in Waterbury, in the state of Vermont, you pay your property taxes twice a year you could take this slip that you would get from the town clerk's office and bring it up to Ben and Jerry's and you would redeem it for 16 pints of ice cream from their run. So whatever day it was, let's say it was Cherry Garcia day, you would get a sleeve of, you know, eight pints this way and then flip eight pints that way. And you'd, you'd just do this exchange. And then unfortunately when Unilever that, that got taken away, but, you know, Waterbury has been this hub for all these iconic brands. It's the Cabot Cheese Sample Room, uh, the, you know, Cider Mill Donuts. If you've never had a Cider Mill Donut, like you have to go to the Cold Hall Cider Mill in Waterbury, Vermont. And now Alchemist Beer is there, you know, the, the birth of Hetty Topper. Um, and it's kind of now like this, you know, the, the centrifuge of the, the roadmap of the microbrew, you know, kind of like, like hit that took off in Vermont and Waterbury's kind of right in the center of it. So yeah, originally from Waterbury, but um, you know, Ben and Jerry's was a big part of my life because you also got free samples. And so my entire childhood was like, you would go on the tour and you would learn the shortcut to go right to the free sample every time. <laughs> well, we had, when I was at Middlebury, we had Ben and Jerry's at every lunch and dinner. And then the, you know, the convenience store, down the hill we would sell ben and jerry's irregulars so like it was they were the ones that had too much stuff in it but it had you know which is so cool like ben and jerry irregular you're like oh i love the irregular it's great dude you're a true vermonter chris you just checked the box that's it crossroads in waterbury vermont had the irregular uh cooler i'll never forget it english toffee heath bar crunch this one time I got an entire thing of English. I got an entire bar of Heath with just chocolate. And I was like, oh, I found the crowd jewel. Like I found like Willy Wonka's golden ticket, but it was in the form of a Heath bar inside it. And it, yeah, irregulars, you're a true Vermonter. Check the box, you win. <laughs> it is funny, the whole Vermont thing. But when you went up to Sugarbush too, in, in a lot of ways, you went to the Mecca of skiing. I mean, you're talking about like John Egan as being a mentor. Doug Lewis was there. I mean, these like the Egan brothers and Doug Lewis might be the people who are the most passionate about skiing of anybody that I've, that I've ever met. What was it like to start there and kind of follow in their footsteps? I got a question for you. Who finished third place in the 1988 uh, men's downhill Olympics? In 88, so in Calgary, in 88. 
The honest truth is you have no clue. I could ask you about the podium at World Championships Olympics, but I could ask you who got third place, the bronze medal in the 1980 World Championships in, I think it was Bormio, Italy, I think. is. The- it was in Bormio. Third- it was 85 though, right? I, it was 80 or 85, but who got third place? Doug Lewis. Doug he Lewis. is the master of life when it has come to creating a career out of an achievement. And I have always just been the biggest fan of Louis still to this day, what he does with elite team, how he teaches self-confidence in people, more Doug Lewis in people's life. Him and Kelly have created something that I think is amazing. As you were mentioning, you know, getting to be at a place when, you know, uh, John Egan, Dan Egan, Doug Lewis, and then my personal favorites were uh, Jesse Murphy, Chris Parkinson, um, who were Warren Miller stars at the time. They were doing like the Warren Miller movie. They wherever they would be that time, you know, it was the birth of ASC, American Ski Corporation, Les Houghton, and so they were constantly going to all these different resorts. So those were my heroes, and I just all I tried to do was chase them around Sugarbush through our freestyle program, the Diamond Dogs, which was started by this guy Kevin Rye, who is still a coach to this day. I ran into him this year. He was up there building moguls. And I asked him, I said, Kevin, how many moguls do you think you've built? And he just looked at me laughing. He's like, I've never thought of that. I was like, and there it comes. There's that analytic side of my brain wanting to know the number of moguls that someone's created in their career. And Kevin's created some of the greatest skiers in the history of the world, but it comes from chasing people like you mentioned. That's the way we, that's the way that I learned skiing, right? I mean, I started ski racing at six years old. And I thought the 13 year olds were like the coolest out there. And my buddy and I, we would just, his brother was one of the 13 year olds. So they kind of let us tag along and that's all we did. We just tagged along and just, and you learn something along the way. And you were usually the test dummy uh, for like straight lining, a jump um, or anything that they were like, yeah, I think we can do this, but Hey, hey Roy, come over here. Come over here. We want you to try something. You get to go first. You're like, oh, I get to go let's go. (laughs) So it makes you become at a younger age, just an advanced skier. You're like already at, you know, at six or whatever time where you're like allowed into the older group through either a connection or skill. And then all of a sudden what they're doing at 13, you're doing at eight. And then by the time you're 13, that gave you the competitive advantage. It gave you the, the ability to, to ski at a level that you know you were five years ahead of your competition because you, you were forced to be or you were just going to get seriously hurt <laughs> or you're going to get serious or you're going to get left they would just leave you and you're like oh, well yeah. that's the last thing you want to have do how much like socially for you were you more connected with your ski friends than you were with your friends at school or was it a similar kind of thing or were there overlaps i had four friends in high school uh or three friends i counted myself um andrew woods Bruce Hyde and Casey Rye. Uh, and I bet they would say pretty much close to the same. We had, you know, other people we were close with, but if it really came down to, those are my three best friends on our ski program. Every single weekend, every decision we made was based around skiing. You know, we were in such a great program that fostered not only, you know, skiing, but also independence and also, you know, a lot of life skills that, yeah, you're not going to see them on the pamphlet when you're trying to convince your parents to pay this huge amount of money to let you be on the freestyle program. But, you know, I look back to it now, you know, some of my best mentors and some of my best people in life, they're still, you know, super close friends to mine back in the matter of her Valley. Like I could go back to the matter of her Valley now and like knock on their door and, you know, it'd be like, Hey, I haven't seen you in 20 years, but it's like, there's been no time. 
it is funny that way. I mean, it's it's such a a non-traditional sport in so many ways. It's not mainstream sport. Yeah. But then the people and the friendships and the connection throughout the country, throughout the world, in so many ways that you run into people. I remember training in New Zealand one summer and I ran into like six people that I'd known from ski racing. And, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people go there to train during the summer, but it's just one of those strange things that the people I was with, because I was training with an adaptive program with, with Winter Park, actually. And like, how do you know these people? And it's like, well, I've been doing this for a while. Like, I know some people. And if I don't know them, then my brother knows them or whatever. So it's kind of an interesting situation. How did it, how did it work for you after you left and went out west? Was that, because I mean, you people give the East coast a hard time, right? I mean, it's, it's bulletproof snow, it's man-made, you know, it's going up the lift and covering your goggles so that you don't get the man-made snow frozen on your, on your goggles. But then the big mountains, what was the lure there? I mean, the instant lure that kind of attracted me the most was just like more terrain, you know, obviously on the East coast, we're really held to the restraints of trees um, obviously there's tree runs, there's backcountry stuff, and there's been a huge explosion now with, you know, the advancement of technology and, and equipment. But, you know, when I was back on the East Coast, you were very much contained to trees or tree skiing. When you move out West, you're very much contained now to uh, boundary lines that are set by the U.S. Forest Service or the ski resort. And it really allowed to explore and, and get to be excited in the mountains again in a, in a new way. And, you know, for me, when I moved out here, you know, it, it was taking you know, about two years to get the transition from the sponsors I was working with at the time to recognize what I was doing out here and develop the relationships with the key people that were involved with those brands and then learning the photographers and the videographers and, and the different ways to promote yourself that I was doing on the East, now on the West. And literally, I mean, I posted the picture. I don't know where it is. I, I posted the picture a little while ago, but I usually I have a picture of it somewhere, but I can't think of where it is right now since we just did a big remodel here at the office. But the day before I broke my back, I put on this ginormous photo shoot with like some of the biggest photographers in the air with some of the biggest things. I mean, David Wise and like, you know, that was some of the characters that were there at very young ages. But with these photographers, all of us getting paid for different companies that were all requesting different stuff. And that was going to be, I could see it. Like, I was like, boom, what I had on the East Coast was about to roll. And it was going to roll in a way that was actually probably in a way, you know, going to be a lot more lucrative than I was on the East Coast because of not only the scale of things out here, but just because of the way it's scaled out here. So is the way that companies look to support and the way that brands have elevated. I mean, Red Bull was launched at Squaw Valley, now Palisades Tahoe. And you got to think of how many careers. I mean, the most iconic skier in the world, Shane McConkie, he, he went to Palisades because, well, he got kicked out of Vail, but he knew what he could accomplish at Palisades too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was actually, he and my brother were at Burke at the same time. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> definitely knew Shane. And, and Shane was the one that everybody said, like, he's the best. You know, if you talk to the racers, they're like, yeah, Shane's the one. If you talk to the big mountain skiers, like, oh, Shane's the one. Like everybody said, it was consensus that yeah. Shane was the was the guy. What what happened? I mean, you said that you you did this photo shoot. Like everything's everything's going, everything's perfect for you. And then and then what happened? Um, you know, ego. Um, you know, I was on a trip. It was you know the last day of employment for Sugar Bowl Academy it was April twenty eighth. 
they then took us down on this coach's retreat and you know all the coaches that i coached with weren't on it i was with all these race coaches and you know i was kind of rebelling against the idea of like uh all the race coaches this is gonna be boring and you know just being a stupid idiot and just like being like egging people on like let's go to the park let's go to the park and i was like begging begging some folks and so finally got one race coach to go with me and by the time in his first run of the day you know obviously let's go hit the biggest jump first run of the day and i got one race coach go to me and we got to the top he's like dude i'm i'm good i was like all right cool i'll see you at the bottom whatever loser and um you know hit the jump 130 feet jump was only 100 feet long jump came right out from under me came down from 30 feet in the air straight to an uphill landing hit it as hard as humanly possible i thought my legs went through my whole body right through my shoulders um you know and the and, you know the, the outcome was a, a, a t12 burst fracture i didn't know what a spinal cord injury was i knew i couldn't feel my toes i couldn't move my legs um and i also was really worried because i'd cut my thumb and i, I exposed an artery and the artery had bled everywhere and I knocked myself out. So by the time I came to it, there's blood everywhere. I can't feel my legs. And I think my legs are through my body and I have no idea what's going on. So, I mean, that, that is kind of this massive uh, introduction to spinal cord injury real quick. And, but you're conscious throughout the whole thing. Like my, my ski popped off in the middle of a turn. I fell. I don't remember. I was in and out that whole first day and probably really the first week kind of things in terms of memory but sounds like you remember a lot of this stuff do you actually remember it or is it sort of reconstructed from what people told you or a little bit of both i hit the ground and upon the hitting the ground i went into a state of like just i think you know the monster release of every endorphin the goods the bads everything possible um I also am 900% sure from, I'm not a doctor, but every doctor says when you completely, um, we'll just be honest, when you, when you shit and pee yourself to the degree that I did, uh, it usually means that you have died uh, because your body catastrophically has released everything. And so that happened. And when I hit, I hit so hard to a degree that I, I can't even explain how hard I hit the ground. And the only thing that really comes to is when I came to it, I had the sense to grab a phone in my pocket and call the head coach that we were there with who called the Mammoth Ski Patrol. And I don't, and I think if I didn't call that person, I think, think I would not be here because the next moment that I remember after that call is this moment of what felt like my body sucking back in to itself as ski patrol. And I, I'm blacked out at this point, but ski patrol had put a map. I called my friend, Jim Hudson's his name, his brother's Bill Hudson, amazing family. Some of the best humans alive. Some of the most instrumental humans in the entire racing community ever their entire family from the East coast to the West coast has paved the path for so many. Um, but if I didn't call Jim, I think I'd probably be dead because the next phase that I remember is that I had a, you know, an air mask on and my body come in and then opening to a couple friends of mine staring at me. And the only way I've ever been able to stare at, to explain it to someone is like, 
imagine if you had just gotten a puppy and the first thing it did was run out into the road and a dog and a, a truck just ran right over it. And that's like this face that they, that they had on them. And I know it's a graphic and it's a terrible thing to say, but there's no other way to say it. And, you know, that's that moment that like, you know, as I continually try to unpack what happened that day, it's like, there are many signs that have like pointed to death and like, what does death and being allowed to return mean for your purpose? And it, it's a really hard thing to, to take on because you know, in some forms, you at times have the idea that you're this, you know, angelical feature. And there's other times that you're wondering, are you a satanic feature that maybe you were left here to do bad? And I mean, it's a, it's a big struggle. But, you know, there's every sign that points to that that day. And I, I remember reading through, there was three code blues from the time code blue, if for people that don't know is medical term for death or someone's on the verge of dying or they are about to die is the simplest way to say it. Uh, there were three code blue calls from on the mountain in Mono Lake Hospital and once in the air flight from Mono Lake up to, this is the kicker, the hardest thing about my injury of all the things. I got flown to Washoe Medical Center. I got operated on Washoe Medical Center. And the next I got operated on April, the night of April 29th. And on May 1st, Washoe Medical Center went from that to renown, a whole new, whole new business, whole new company. And I got triple billed, double billed, quadruple billed for so long. I mean, bless my mom, bless her heart, the greatest person ever in my world. She passed away from cancer early in life, but she navigated what could have been like probably $8 million in payments. You know, spinal cord injuries aren't cheap. But I was nowhere near that total. But because of this weird name change, operational, rebuying all these things, like I got quadruple billed for like my spinal cord injury forever. But, you know, back to the code blue thing, it's like, you know, I think I was given the second chance and there's this constant reminder, you know, ever since my injury is like the purpose that you were left on this earth is to, is to do good. But like, how do you constantly do good? Like, you can't live your life like that. You can't go peak to peak to peak to peak to peak. Like, because if you do, then when that one valley shows up, it's going to be, it's going to be absolutely the worst. And I, I think, you know, that's always been a struggle with me and my injury is like knowing that there's a purpose why I was left and what is this purpose and what am I trying to fulfill as this purpose of being left on this earth? It's funny because you asked the existential question, right? You know, like, am I good? Am I evil? Am I not at all? It all kind of comes to this one fine point. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. In some ways, it's probably like people talk about, like, you see your life go before you, before you die or whatever. But this is like, this is what am I doing here? But then the what am I doing here in some ways when your rehab was that you broke T12, you damaged the spinal cord, which generally means that you're going to be in a wheelchair, but you walked out of rehab. Does that make you different in that you walked out that you didn't go in a wheelchair? Well, we'll stay in this biblical reference of, you know, angelical versus satanic, because a lot of times, you know, it, it's hard to explain in the disability community. Um, but a lot of times I tried to explain to individuals that unfortunately I'm stuck in what I think is purgatory. Um, you know, I in my own justice, because I have the physical ability to walk, I feel like I am must, I must walk. I must continually try to walk better. But I'll tell you what, man, 
walking every day kicks the living shit out of me. If people, when people are like, oh, I have some pain, I'm like, come on, let's talk about pain. You want to talk about pain? Let's talk. Like we can talk like, you know, um, in, in Rocky when they were like, what's the prediction of this fight? And, you know, freaking uh, Mr. T's just like pain. And that's like, that's my life, man. And it's like, but I don't feel like, because I have the ability that I should try to not use assistive devices. But then at the second hand, it's like, man, my life would be so much easier for me because the pain level would decrease in these areas that, you know, walking do. So, and just to be clear, when I walked out, I had a walker with the tennis balls on it. I had AFOs on both feet and I had uh, a waist belt with a guide behind it. There's a great, there's a difference between the words and what actually happened to. And I ended up then developing the worst drop foot you've ever seen, had to have catastrophic surgery, got misdiagnosed, ended up having a, a doctor inject me with 20,000 cc's of Botox because he was convinced my muscles were seized when really it was the tendon had shortened by two and a half centimeters. It didn't took over three years to get that diagnosed by an amazing physical therapist out here by the name of Lad Williams. And that's really what caused me to not have what I would say 100% recovery because of the fact that I was, I was misdiagnosed. Unfortunately, in what I believe, but never would go after is a true case of medical malpractice. Wow. Yeah. So this is the walking side and the skiing side. I mean, I have to ask this question, right? I'm a, I'm a mono skier. You're talking about the limitations of being a four tracker, which is two skis with two outriggers. Do you have your skis tied together at the front? You don't, which a lot of four trackers do to keep from, from having your skis go one over the other, crossing your tips kind of thing. But, you know, I, I look at it because, I mean, I saw Chris Young when he was on the ski team. And he was an LW1. He was a four tracker. Yep. And, you know, beat up his knees and all that stuff and everything. And then ended up coming into a monoski and was so much stronger in a lot of ways. And like prevailed an incredible career. Like went oh, from yeah. a, you know, a, you know, a, a member of the Paralympic ski team to being a face of brands, members, gold medals, podiums, you know, very similar to yourself, you know, that was like, hey, like I went from being a member to now a face of. <laughs> Oh, he transformed the sport. He really did, you know, and, and taking that knowledge as well. And, and sometimes that knowledge of having to work harder. And this is back to you being a little kid chasing the big kids around and getting to hit the jump first. It's like you had to work that much harder to, to keep up. But then when it gets a little bit easier, you go, oh, wow, I'm really good now. And it doesn't hurt as much. So I don't know. Am I planting a seed? I'm mostly asking a question if you've considered it. So I've been challenged by many athletes. I have two of what I think are probably the best uh, coaches in the world willing to give me every possible instruction through Elena and Trevor. Um, and, you know, for me, um, you know, it wasn't actually to this year. I'll drop a name. We both know it's been influential in both our lives is Eric Peterson. I had coffee with Eric in Winter Park and we had this like aha moment. There is a moment within a four trackers career that you can no longer get any better than you are. And the reason being is because when Chris transitioned to a monoski, what he got that he never had while he was four tracking was suspension. The human body a natural able-bodied skier, the reason they can do all that rad stuff is their legs act as suspension. 
when I am for tracking, if you want to see what a broken linkage suspension looks like, watch me ski. That is what broken linkage suspension looks like on a Baja truck. And my whole thought process, because actually in 2012, I had an even more catastrophic injury, which most people don't even know about. I snapped my femur skiing for tracking uh, through a binding malfunction. I snapped my femur completely where my leg rotated one and a half times around and my foot was facing backwards. And I had to have complete reconstructive surgery from the hip all the way to the top of the knee. How much of that do you feel? The only, so when it first happened, I was like, man, did I shit myself? I'll just be honest. I thought I did. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Like I crashed pretty hard. I was like, I did it again. I died. That was my first thought. It's like, I did it again. I died. And uh, it was just really because I, I my there's little to no sensation in my right leg. My right leg is basically dead. Um, so when it happened, I was like, oh God. So then I'm there, like, I'm like, this is starting to hurt. My my intern at the time shows up. I'm like, hey, his name's Cliff. I'm like, Cliff, um, I think something's wrong. He's like, oh, do you need help up, man? I'm like, I think it's more than help up. <laughs> and I'm like, I need you to look and tell me where the tip of my ski is, because I was still in the ski. And he's like, it's uphill. How's that possible? And I was like, oh God. I was like, where's my toe with my boot? He's like, your toes facing your I was like, can you go get the ski patrol? And so that was this massive. So my, my right leg, which is my weak leg, as you know, not everyone knows, but spinal cord injuries, you always have one side that comes back stronger than the other. My left side of my body is about 95% cured. My right side is 25% cured. Now add on this broken femur. Um, you know, my right leg has two plates, 13 screws, and then it has this pin that holds my whole kneecap together uh, because my whole leg was destroyed. And so I try to four track on top of that. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, a mono ski is definitely, definitely in the direction of where I need to be heading. <laughs> We've been all over the place, all over the map in terms of this discussion. <laughs> I want to get to the high fives part of it. Where did the name high fives come from? So as I said, uh, life flighted from Mono to Reno to what was Washoe, then Renown. Doctor, his name is Dr. David Lepla. Uh, ironically, his great-great-great-grandfather was Nathaniel Chittenden, who was the first ever governor of Vermont. And he and I had that connection. He is the most dry humor, dry as possible human possible. And he came in the next day and just, hey, you know, surgery went great. You know, we ended up having to do a blood infusion. Things went great. And he kind of like doing this kind of monotone, trying to change his voice. He's like, I, I think like things are going to, you're going to have a good recovery. And I was like, awesome. Like, thanks, man. And my hand just stood there for a while. And I was like, hey, can you slap my hand? Like, this is really awkward. It's like, huh? And I was like, yeah, that, that means like, I'm still tear stoked. Like, it's impossible to slap someone's hand and not have a positive exchange. Like, let's do this. And so years later, we were like, you know, originally it was, a, you know, the foundation was started on the idea of the ski event. And when we were trying to come up with the name, we were, had all these, we'll just be honest, stupid names. And one day I was like, hey, what about high fives? This doctor one day, and everyone was like, oh, that's the name. And off it went. Because <laughs> I mean, it's so cool that you did the high five with the doctor. Because sometimes, I mean, in the hospital, obviously, you and I have spent more time in the hospital than most people. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt that I wanted to make myself sort of unique to the doctors. I wanted to make myself important to them. 
you know, and it seems like with the high five, you were able to do that. You were able to break this barrier between the doctor sitting there writing his notes and you're lying there in the bed hooked up to tubes and all of that stuff. Is that the transformation that you're talking about within the organization too? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I, it wasn't just that doctor, that was just like that, the start of it from there, like the nurses that I met in the ICU. And like, if you ever want to meet salt of the earth, saint human beings, go, go meet an ICU nurse that just like wants to make sure that you are taken care of. But on the flip side, there's also the ICU nurses that you need to advocate for yourself that they're not the salt of the earth for, that you need to say, I want one of the salt of the earth people for. That is one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give to any newly injured spinal cord injury person is that you are paying absurd amount of money to be in a place. And if you don't like things, say something. That's the number one thing to tell any newly injured spinal cord. But back to that is that, yeah, I mean, nurses and then my OTs and then my PTs. And then it just kind of like started as a way because like, it, it, it transitioned people's eyes to away from like what I saw as an imperfection too, which is my lower half, you know, because it, it's rendered and like the perfect way to give a high five is you look at someone's elbow. So if you're looking at someone's elbow, you're, you're not looking at their kneecaps. You're not looking at their shins. You're not looking at their thighs. Um, you know, you're looking at a different part of the body that in my mind is not, you know, rendered in a different way. So you changed their perspective effectively i mean so much of this is is getting people to see you for who you are as opposed to like what happened to you yeah <laughs> how much of that was conscious how much of it was not you know it wasn't until you know it was let's see 10 years after my accident that i actually one of the things i tell everyone all the time is like let's find the positive out of the negative and for the longest time to me you know, the positive out of the negative of my injury was the creation of high fives, which, yeah, it's, it's positive. It's awesome. But, you know, 10 years later, I was meeting with a family, this incredible family, the Peterson family out of Idaho. Their son had just sustained a, a spinal cord injury. He was a traveling nurse, sweet of the earth. And, you know, sit down. There's like 18 members of the family. They all want answers. And right then it hit me as I sat next to his mom, Twani, who was, oh my God, do you want to, if you want the all-American mom, she is the all-American mom. I sat there and I, I, it hit me and I said, holy shit. The positive out of the negative of my spinal cord injury is that I got to spend 52 days with my mom who died of cancer at a very young age, uh, eight years after my spinal cord injury, that if I didn't have my spinal cord injury 52 days consecutively with my mom, which were not, they weren't going to the unicorn farm and picking out a unicorn to hop on every day, you know, mom's tough love is mom's tough love. Um, and mom can be annoying too. But it hit me that moment right then and there that, you know, that was the whole point was to, you know, spend 52 days with my mom. That's why the, this injury happened, because then it gave me 52 extra days that I never would have gotten with her. And it's like it hits you in those moments. The idea of the, the name of the foundation and, and the way to distract people was that, like you said, it was there were so many patients. And, you know, at that time at 24, like. You don't know how to advocate for yourself. Like, luckily I had a mom that was advocating for me, but I wanted to make sure that people remembered who I was, but I didn't want them to remember, oh, he's the kid who had a spinal cord injury from a ski accident. He's got a really nice mom and a really cool group of friends that come and support him. Like, I wanted them to be like, hey, remember him? He, he said hi with a high five. And that was a really cool way to start my day. 
And it just felt like a really cool thing to create like a distraction from what was really going on. And it also was a way for, you know, to create an introduction that till COVID was very sanitary because it was a quick slap instead of a handshake. <laughs> and and I, I would say it was, it was a change in direction as opposed to a distraction as well. You know, not necessarily, I mean, I think, I think it was really, it was a positive move. It's interesting on the, on the community side, because you've built this community, 500 plus athletes. I mean, so many athletes and athletes who are blowing our mind too, right? Like a Trevor Kinnison that you, that you mentioned, the guy who jumped in a monoski into Corbett's Coolwar, which, I mean, when he landed, I think he bounced like 10 feet on after he landed to then land again i mean it was it was absolutely amazing as a monoskier to watch that uh i think uh you know i mean a variety of athletes who are who are defining athletes but it's also it's a community that there are two parts of it one it's a community that that you didn't want to join i didn't want to join this community hmm. didn't want any part of this community but it's also it's an invisible part of the population oftentimes and to go to your website and to look at 500 plus athletes that have come through high fives, it puts a name, it puts a face, it puts a character to so many people. I mean, it really, it, it really is amazing to see that, that wealth of community. Is that something that you, that you thought you could create early on? Did it happen organically? How did this come about? You know, you hit on a lot of cool points there and I'll, I'll try to hit on them and make sure I stay in the correct direction. One, uh, Trevor Kennison, what he did at Corbett's is nothing compared to what will be released in October in his three-year documentary. He has done things in, mono, in a monoski that no one, no one, no one in the world has done. No one has even thought of. There are many people in able bodies haven't even done what he has done. Um, and I can't wait for the world to see it. It's going to be awesome. It's truly going to show this new word concept. It's not impossible. It's I am possible, which is what Trevor is fully living. Um, the second part, you know, Elena gave a speech to this great group of young individuals that all had disabilities. And the, the event was really focused towards the parents. And this is Elena Nichols, who is your, who is your partner, who is a gold medalist in both winter and summer three Paralympic sports and the best female surfer, adaptive surfer in the world. Like, and the best, and the best mom too in the world too. We and the best mom. Check. Okay. Okay. You should, wait, just Gunner's world-class. Um, so she gave this speech to this group and, and the event was really tailored towards the parents of uh, young children with disabilities, either born with or sustained or, you know, just at a younger age than the typical age. Our population we serve is right around that 26, 27 year old uh, from injury. It's, it's very heavily male uh, because well, let's just admit it, you and I are, um, well, adventure seekers and we do dumb things um, and we just think that way. Uh, but back to the point, as Elena said to this family of, of these parents that were looking, how do, I get my, how do I get my kid into community? And she said, perfectly. She said, community is a byproduct of sport. And when you have participation in sport, you're naturally creating community without even knowing it. And so if you can find ways to create inclusion, eliminating the barriers, eliminating the adaptations that are, you know, to the point where it's just like, this is, a, you know, the adaptation so far that you're like, is this really participating? Or do we have to find another sport that it gives that opportunity to participate at the level that these parents were looking at? And, you know, these parents took away from that point 
And since then, it's been like one of my biggest driving forces is that every time that we host one of the five different disciplines that we're really focused on at the foundation, yeah, surfing is cool. Yeah, fly fishing is cool. Mountain biking is cool. Skiing is cool. And surfing is cool. But like when it really comes down to it, those are just the vessel or the rocket ship to get people all on this planet so that they can all create this synergy and, and create this idea of creating community. And I think that's some of the biggest things that we've been able to do at the foundation is creating these communities through these gatherings of sport. And for us, the word athlete, you know, it's pretty cool. We kind of market it pretty heavily here. Here's just a hat from the foundation. Um, is a term that we use because when I first started the foundation, I hated the idea of being like high fives, grantees, high fives, awardees, high fives, recipients. Like I was just like, this is, anybody can be an awardee. Anybody can be a grantee. Anybody can be one of those things. Like it could be anything from a scholarship to all those. And those are all great achievements. But what we're all trying to do as we're wondering what happened to this identity that we all knew or this identity that we're trying to achieve, if we can use sport as a byproduct to not only, you know, catapult who we are, but also catapult us into new relationships, new communities, new friendships, new ideas from meeting people, then I want to term them as an athlete. And I was on a call earlier with a, with a program. They said, that's a pretty bold word. And I said, yeah, you're right. Because I see that an individual that has set a goal as a spinal cord injury that wants to go skiing with their family again, just like they did prior to their injury, that's still an athlete. Just like the athlete who approached us that said, I want to get to the South Pole on the 100-year exploration, 100 nautical miles out to celebrate 100 years of South Polar exploration and be the first person in the history of the world to do it in a sit ski. Okay, cool. That's an athlete too. Because they both have goals. And like at the end of the day, that's that, that's all that matters to me is like, you have a goal. I want you to know that life will never be the same, but it can be awesome. Let's achieve these goals, create community through you getting back out in the sport and participating in a way that just makes you happy, that creates joy inside of you. <laughs> what makes you happy and it captivates you, right? It, it gets you exactly where you live and you're willing to put the work in, you're willing to sacrifice, you're willing to go through the pain to get there. And it's funny that you mentioned going back to skiing with your family. That to me was more representative of my recovery than anything else that I did. I was able to ski with my family. I was able to ski with my friends. My best day of skiing, I still say, was one day I lived in Vail after I graduated from Middlebury. The, the NCAs were at Steamboat and two of the guys who were still on the team lived in Vail. So the team came out and we skied and it was the first time I was a peer with them. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is the best day. They're not picking me up and all this stuff. Like we're just skiing and, and you're back. But the community is interesting too, in that this is the community, like the adaptive community or disabled community or whatever you want to call it. Cause sometimes, sometimes we fall all over ourselves trying to figure out what the proper word is. And, you know, and anyway, we don't need to find the perfect word, but that group in some ways can be separate, but you also came into high fives in some ways through, through the support of a couple of other communities. Right. And this was, this was this, these were the people who raised money for you when you're in the hospital. And did this help you with the with the paying it forward, but also connecting 
to greater communities than just the one in which you found yourself as a result of an accident? You know, but prior to my injury, I was, you know, a pretty successful, you know, sponsored skier. Um, and I took after my injury, all of those sponsors as many of the first people that donated to the foundation when we started, you know, Hey, they all want to know what can we do to help? All right, here's what you can do to help. I started this foundation. I want to see your brand a part of it. They're like, oh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm like, don't worry about it. Not scary. Uh, we're okay. It's all right. You can get a part of it. You know, little did I know 13 years later, it's like the hottest topic in the world is like inclusion. And, I, and it's not just adaptive. It's not just disabled, but it goes back to your point. I, you brought it up. Unfortunately, a lot of times in these, you know, BIPOC, LGBTQ, all the different, different categories of inclusion that we're trying to find within the outdoor space, a lot of times they still forget disabled at the bottom. And to me, I'm always saying, okay, cool. I want to elevate it. I don't, I don't want what you just said, you know, in that best day ever. I don't ever want someone to not to be able to experience that best day. And what I mean by that is I have a problem with the idea of not forward progression. So, you know, they're amazing. We all know that without Eric Peterson, there's so many skiers that wouldn't exist. But he created a pathway for them to become independent. And Eric's always done that with folks. I want you to get to this independent point so that you can feel like you're a part of it. And I think that's so important so that if, you know, your buddies from Middlebury on Wednesday at 1.15, they're like, yo, Chris, we just came to town randomly. Can you come skiing with us? And instead of you being like, hold on, I've got to call the adaptive program. I've got to make sure that I can get a piece of equipment, two instructors, and that they're not booked for the day. And that's not against them. But like what I want and what I've always wanted at high fives is so that you, Chris, at 115 can be like, yep, my sit ski's actually already loaded in the car, guys. I'll beat you there because I get better parking. When you get there, uh, meet me here and we'll go skiing. And it's like, there's no thing that is stopping you from going there and you feel like you're, you feel like you're a peer. And, you know, now with the advancement of mountain bikes, the advancements of surfing, people are able to do that in a lot of sports. And that's what excites me the most. I mean, we just purchased, I don't know if purchase is the right word. I, I don't know what the term is, acquired um, a nonprofit out of Colorado called Return to Dirt, which takes UTVs, those side-by-side, -side, you know, off-road vehicles, and we completely transform them. So they're hundred percent accessible and hundred percent drivable for anybody with a disability to a, to a varying degree. And we provide access back out into the woods. It's like, how about 10 years ago? Could you do that? Not a chance. But now there's the opportunities to create people's access into sports. And that's what excites me to give people the opportunity that at 5.01 PM, if there's night skiing at, you know, in, in Utah and your buddy's flying for a night skiing thing, you, you can just go, you know, and like that, that, that's always been my goal with high fives. And that's always been my thing. Well, that, and, and you talk about the inclusion part. One of the things that I find so, so compelling is is when some of the other people want to be a part of it. I remember talking to Darren Rolfs, you know, and he was saying, he's like, high fives, yeah, I'm going to be a part of this. I want to be a part of what these guys are doing. And you're taking one of the best skiers. I mean, you talked about Shane McConkey. I mean, Darren's got to be somewhere within that conversation. I mean, guy won Kitzbühel, but also does some amazing, I mean, just I've seen him in some movies and I just think he's going really fast. Like he's skiing powder and, and cliffs and all this stuff at the same time and and just makes it look so ridiculously easy but to but to bring those communities together where 
It's not a, oh man, hey, that's great. You know, give you a hand up. It's like, I love what you're doing, which is exactly what you're selling to the athletes out there. That it's that it's the captivation about the heart and people who just go and blow minds, who, who literally just do stuff that you go, I didn't think that that was possible. And that's the cool part. <laughs> well, thank you for recognizing that. I mean, I, I think it's just like, you know, this is, it's been amazing. This is just a, a topic and I, I'd love to have you think on this topic and thus the talk face on it more because once you really think about it, it's really deep. I was sitting with this incredible family that said, you know, they, they're, I, just to give a little preface, they're probably between 50 and 60 years old. Uh, amazing couple. And they said, you know, Roy, what were you taught as a child when you saw a person with a disability? And my parents, just like their parents, said, don't look, do not stare, do not ask a question, just respect their space and kind of move on. So we now have to, unfortunately, probably have two generational gaps to happen before people first thought when they see a disability, a, a, good, a good amount of our, our, our human beings now, a good amount of the population still in their mind, first thing they do, when they see a person with a disability is do not stare, do not ask questions, give them their space. I mean, you know this, I see it with Elena and myself when I walk with a cane, people will be on a pathway that's wide enough for 10 goddamn wheelchairs and they'll get on the grass and they're like, I'm sorry, I'm in your way. You're like, there's another 15 feet between us. Like you're not in a Mack truck, like it's all right, you know? And it's like, it's that wildness that that is this generational gap that, that has to be transcended forward that this idea that do not stare, do not look, do not, you know, take away their space from them has to be transcended for, for a period of time before we're really going to see some big change for disability. Yes. And, and I think that that's a great place that we have to stop because I think it's, it's going from don't stare to what do you do? How can, how can we connect? How, what do we share? And always like, the biggest thing, and this is what I think we can leave on is, is, you know, lead with curiosity. Don't, don't lead with like trying to compare. Don't lead with like, Oh, I, I have a friend. No, just say, Hey, how you doing? Um, I noticed, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're today. Can, can I just ask? Some people are going to say, no, I, I'd appreciate you not. Some people are going to be like, yeah, no problem at all. I mean, you ask me, I'll freaking, I'm an open book. I'll tell you everything. And there's other people like me like that, but there's also people just sorted. They're like, no, I don't want to tell you, leave me alone. Be prepared for that. Don't take it personal, but lead with curiosity. Don't come with accusation. <laughs> exactly. And hopefully try to see the person and see, see some of what they're doing as opposed to, hey, what happened to you? You know, because yeah. <laughs> that's a hard one. That's a hard conversation starter with a lot of people. <laughs> yes, exactly. What happened is not always the best leader. <laughs> exactly. What happened to you? What happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> I was born. You too? Wait a second. <laughs> exactly. Roy, thanks so much for joining us. This is awesome. And we could talk for a lot longer, but I know you've got a hard stop and I do too. But uh, really total pleasure. Keep up the great work. I mean, it's so cool you, to sir. see what you're doing. So cool to see the athletes coming out and people who are, who are really just stretching people's imagination. I mean, it's just, I, it, it blows my mind. It really does. So many of these athletes. So keep it up. Will do, sir. Great talking with you, Chris. Totally appreciate it. Uh, thank you all for joining. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sure you did. Please tell your friends, 
Tell your friends to tune in. We'll have another great guest next week. When this comes out as a podcast, you'll be able to find it on Apple and Spotify and all the places you find podcasts. If you can like us, if you can follow us, we'll continue to reach a greater group of people with an awesome message. So thanks a ton and we'll see you next time. Yeah.